Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, wishing you a blessed Passion Tide. Now, on today's program, just when I thought it was safe to go back on the internet, <laughs> Benedictism has once again reared its ugly head. And I would have thought that the death of Benedict XVI would uh, have rendered whether or not he really resigned to be a moot point. Uh, and, and just shut this particular nonsense down uh, just for lack of interest, if for no other reason. But I stand corrected. So that's coming up later. Also going to clear up some misconceptions surrounding the custom of veiling images in the church during the last two weeks of Lent. And we're also going to answer the question, can we call Protestants Christians? Again, something I didn't even know was an issue, but I got quite an email yesterday, and even though I typically answer them privately, I thought this one would interest you, so all of that coming up. But to begin with, this Sunday, Sunday of this week in the Extraordinary Form Liturgy, was Passion Sunday, and therefore the beginning of that part of Lent traditionally called Passion Tide. So without further ado, the Gospel for Passion Sunday uh, in the extraordinary form, the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 46 through 59. Jesus said, Which of you can convict me of sin? If I say what is true, why do you not believe me? Whoever comes from God listens to the words of God. The reason why you refuse to listen is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and are possessed? In the old Douay Reims in the Latin Vulgate, it says, uh, Are we not correct in saying that thou hast a devil? Jesus said, I am not possessed. I honor my Father, but you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews retorted, Now we are positive that you are possessed. Abraham died, and the prophets are dead. Yet you say, whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Uh, he is dead, and the prophets are also dead. Whom do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, that glory is of no value. It is my Father who glorifies me, the one about whom you say he is our God, even though you do not know him. However, I do know him. If I would say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. How can you have seen Abraham? Jesus responded, Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself and left the temple. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Uh, by this point, the scribes and the Pharisees hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. They scrutinized his behavior. They set traps for him, right? No-win scenarios like the question about the, uh, you know, paying taxes or the, the stoning the woman caught in adultery, uh, in which they hoped to catch him in a contradiction, either of the Jewish law or the Roman law. But they couldn't find anything wrong. No one could accuse him of a single sin and make it stick. And Jesus demonstrated that he was God in the flesh by his perfectly sinless life, as well as by his miracles. Every saint has become a saint by following 
his perfect example, which explains why uh, the most popular Christian book after the Holy Bible is The Imitation of Christ, because it's that essential. Now, this episode represents one of the places in the Gospels where Jesus intentionally challenged his listeners to test him. Which of you can convict me of sin? In other words, who can demonstrate, who can prove that I have ever sinned? He actually welcomed those who wanted to question him and his character so long as they were willing to follow through on what they discovered. Because he detests hypocrisy. If what I say is true, why don't you believe me? So Jesus challenges his enemies to prove that he's sinned, and their response is just to keep making accusations. Some things never change. Now, what Jesus' challenge does is to clarify the two most common reasons why people miss it when they encounter the truth of Christ and his church. Number one, either they do not accept the challenge to test him, or that is, to, they don't honestly examine the evidence. Or number two, they test him, but they're not willing to accept what they discover. Even believers can turn a blind eye to the teaching of Jesus. I mean, hence the term cafeteria Catholics, hence the term Protestant. You know, hence the, well, bishops of Germany, call your office. <laughs> Jesus says, I digress, I'm sorry. Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. Not surprisingly, the crowd misunderstands him. But when Jesus says that those who obey him won't die, he's not talking about physical death. But he's talking about spiritual death, which means spending eternity separated from God. As Catholic Christians, I mean, we profess in the creed every Sunday that we believe in the resurrection of the body. In the end, physical death itself will be overcome. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And according to our good Lord, those who have done good deeds will rise to life, while those who have done evil will rise to judgment. We will, all of us, enter eternity. We will all of us exist forever, but only those who follow Christ will be raised to enjoy eternity with him forever. Now, in the Old Testament, God told Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's in Genesis 12 and, and also in Genesis 15. Now, as God the Father promised, Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, has blessed all people through his death, resurrection, uh, and his offer of salvation. In the gospel, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, St. Paul writes about this in the letter to the Hebrews, where he says, all these, meaning Abraham and the prophets, uh, all these died in faith without having received what had been promised, but from a distance they saw far ahead how those promises would be fulfilled and welcomed them and acknowledged themselves to be strangers and foreigners on the earth. Thus, when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, he means that he saw it through the eyes of faith, and was glad. But the Jews respond, you're not yet 50 years old. How can you have seen Abraham? And by the way, you know, beyond their incredulity, there's a, there's a subtle insult here that often goes unnoticed. Many people called Jesus rabbi, that is, teacher, but Jesus, you know, at the end of his life, earthly life, he was only 33 years old. Now, in Jewish tradition, to be a rabbi, you had to be at least 50. So this is not only a reference to the obvious fact that Jesus wasn't old enough to have lived since the days of Abraham, but that he wasn't even old enough to teach with authority in the first place. Now, our Lord's response is one of the most powerful 
one of his most powerful statements. In fact, it's one of the most powerful statements ever made. Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When he declared that he existed before Abraham was born, he undeniably proclaimed his divinity. And he didn't just say that he existed before Abraham, he actually applied God's holy name from Exodus, I am, to himself. Now that was a claim that demanded a response. It couldn't be ignored. The Jewish leaders well understood what Jesus was claiming, and so, in accordance with the the law given in Leviticus 24.16, they tried to stone Jesus for blasphemy because he claimed equality with God. Now, of course, it's ironic that they were the real blasphemers, (laughs) cursing and attacking Jesus because they wouldn't accept the simple truth that Jesus is God, the very God they claimed to serve. Now, this then is the great question for all of humanity. Um, how do you respond to Jesus, the Son of God? And that's no nonsense. Now, um, this is the traditional gospel for what is called Passion Sunday. Uh, although this you know, gospel was not read in the Novus Ordo on the fifth Sunday of Lent, uh, it's still likely that when you entered the parish church on Sunday that you found the crucifix and the statuary covered by purple veils. Which prompts the questions, why are the crosses and images covered during the last two weeks of Lent? Well, first off, the duration of that veiling varies from one place to another. And it's up to your bishop's conference whether the veiling of crosses and images should be obligatory or optional. And the most common custom today is to veil the images from before the vigil mass of the fifth Sunday of Lent. But in some places, the veiling only begins after the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday. And yet other places, images and statues are not simply veiled, but actually removed from the church, uh, especially after Holy Thursday. Now, you'll note also that neither the Stations of the Cross nor the stained glass windows are ever veiled. And this is for practical reasons. Obviously, you need the windows for light. And the Stations of the Cross, uh, you know, the Stations, you have to have them... um, for making the way of the cross, which is a particularly appropriate devotion for Lent, especially on Fridays, including Good Friday. Um, and speaking of which, the, the crosses and crucifixes are unveiled after the ceremonies on Good Friday, but the other images are only uncovered and without any ceremony right before the Easter Vigil Mass. So this custom <clears throat> of veiling these images during the last two weeks of Lent hails from the traditional liturgical calendar on which the fifth Sunday of Lent, also known as Passion Sunday, was the beginning of Passion Tide. Uh, During the last two weeks of Lent in the extraordinary form, the Passion is actually read four times, Palm Sunday, Tuesday and Wednesday of Holy Week, as well as Good Friday. And and as we, we just talked about, the traditional gospel for Passion Sunday is John 8, 46 to 59, wherein the final verse corresponds to that tradition availing crucifixes. They picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself. All right, going to go on to talk about the uh, customs of Fashion Tide and some abuses when we return right after this with more No-Nonsense Catholic.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the customs and traditions of Passion Tide, particularly the veiling of crosses and images. And I consulted a number of sources uh, doing the research for this segment, and uh, it was interesting that virtually all the Novus Ordo, uh, the post-Vatican II sources that I consulted, tell us that, uh, and they all agree, that the practice of veiling images alerts us that, quote, something is different, that while it can be startling at first, the last two weeks of Lent are a time of immediate preparation for the celebration of the Easter Triduum, that's Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Sunday as well. Uh, let's see. The, so the veils serve as a reminder to prepare ourselves. Now, the explanation that's provided by St. John's Seminary in Boston is typical, so I'm just going to read it to you. The veiled images build within us a longing for Easter Sunday. The veils seem out of place, even counterintuitive. It can seem strange that the crucifix is covered up during Passion Tide. Through this absence of images, our senses are heightened and we become more aware of what is missing. Similarly, the suppression of the Alleluia during Lent effectively demonstrates that we are in exile from our true home, where the angels sing Alleluia without ceasing. When images are unveiled before the Easter Vigil, we are reminded that we, in a sense, live in a veiled world. It is through our own death that we are able to see our true home, and the veil is lifted. Christ lifts the veil through his resurrection. Now, I found it interesting that all of these Novus Ordo sources used the exact same words. Um, something's different, seems out of place, counterintuitive. And it makes me wonder if they didn't all consult some common source. Maybe there's a, a statement from the U.S. bishops or something regarding Passion Tide. Uh, um, but in any case, all of this is true. But the historical origin of the practice lies elsewhere. It likely derives from a custom uh, noted in Germany since the 9th century of extending a large cloth in front of the altar from the very beginning of Lent. The, the cloth was called the Hungertuch, which is German for hunger cloth, and it hid the altar entirely from the faithful during Lent, and it wasn't removed until Holy Wednesday at the words, and the veil of the temple was rent in two during the, the reading of the Passion on Holy Wednesday. Now, I suspect that this uh, is because the medieval, orig uh, medieval origin of veiling images in Lent, because of that medieval origin, that's what caused some modern authors, and I'm sorry, I refuse to call them scholars, modern authors, conjecture that the real reason for this practice is that the poor, ignorant, and often illiterate faithful needed some way to know that it was Lent. Um, I cannot tell you how intensely I detest this kind of condescending ahistorical claptrap. Trust me, medieval Catholics didn't need any special reminders to know when Lent began. All right? Not only did their entire lives revolve around the liturgical calendar in a way that no modern Catholics does, even in religious institutions, but they would have already been preparing, like Catholics all the way up until 1970, they would have been preparing for Lent since Septuagesima Sunday. And, and through the the short season of Septuagesimatide, which many, if not most modern Catholics, have probably never even heard of. But I digress again. The, the use of the hunger cloth was most likely an early medieval remnant of the even more ancient practice of public penance, in which penitents were ritually expelled from the church at the beginning of Lent and had to stand outside the church in sackcloth and ashes until the Easter Vigil. 
Uh, and and now the, the idea is that after the ritual of public penance fell into disuse, thanks be to God, uh, the entire congregation symbolically, which is to say liturgically, entered into the order of penitence by the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday. So nobody was singled out for public penance. Everybody joins in this liturgical season of penance. And then the entire congregation was, you know, symbolically expelled from the church by concealing the altar from view until they were reconciled to God at Easter. And so for, for comparable motives, later on in the Middle Ages, the images of crosses, crosses, crucifixes, and saints were covered from the start of Lent. Now, the rule of limiting the veiling to Passiontide, the last two weeks of Lent, um, only first officially appears with a publication of the bishop's ceremonial in the 17th century. So after Vatican II, uh, the modernists wanted to abolish all veiling of images, but as we can see, thankfully, the practice survived, although it is not obligatory unless mandated by the local bishop's conference. And there you have it. But uh, as a final note, even where traditional veiling is observed, liturgical nonsense still rears its ugly head. And I've experienced this myself in the past, and maybe you have as well, uh, perhaps even in your own parish. And that is, as you enter a church during Lent, you go to bless yourself only to discover that the holy water is empty. The, the holy water font has no holy water in it. Or <laughs> I, I had the experience of going to a church where it had been replaced with sand. Okay. Uh, now, this practice is not only, well, imbecilic, it's a genuine abuse. The question of whether it's legitimate to remove holy water during Lent was answered by the Congregation of the Doctrine of Worship and the Sacraments back in 2004. Uh, they said, and I quote, This dicastery responds that the removing of holy water from the fonts during the season of Lent is not permitted, in particular for two reasons. One, the liturgical legislation in force does not foresee this innovation, which, in addition to being prater legem, which is Latin for outside the law, is contrary to a balanced understanding of the season of Lent, which, though truly being a season of penance, is also a season rich in symbolism of water and baptism, constantly evoked in the liturgical texts. Number two, the encouragement of the Church that the faithful avail themselves frequently of the sacraments is to be understood to apply also to the season of Lent. The fast and abstinence which the faithful embrace in this season does not extend extend to abstaining from the sacraments or the sacramentals of the church. You know, you, you would assume that you would have more frequent recourse to them. I remember the first time I ever encountered this, I, I was talking to, to a friend of mine, um, and I asked him, you know, about what they were doing. There was church, says, well, our church, we're fasting from holy water, <laughs> which is, when you put it that way, you, you see how ridiculous it is. You know, and I, I should mention that, that this is an abuse, and the abuse of the empty holy water fonts, though, likely comes from a misunderstanding of an actually legitimate practice. You know, the response from the Congregation of, of Divine Worship says, quote, the practice of the Church has been to empty the holy water fonts on the days of the sacred triduum in preparation of the blessing of the water at Easter Vigil, which is part of the baptismal rite for the catechumens that are coming into the Church. Uh, and it corresponds to those days on which the Eucharist is not celebrated. That is Good Friday and Holy Saturday. So there's a liturgical practice of, of no holy water in the font, but only on the two days 
the only two days of the year when there is no Mass, and in preparation for the Sacraments of Initiation. And, and by the way, you know, although the Easter Vigil is technically takes place on Saturday evening, liturgically, sundown is the beginning of Easter Sunday. So there it is. Okay, uh, <laughs> I saw an article the other day on the 1 Peter 5 website, it's a traditionalist website, um, but it was from a fellow named Stephen O'Reilly, and it was called Wither Benepapism. And Benepapism, a.k.a. Benevacantism, is a reference to the belief of a small, I want to say tiny fringe of Catholics who have convinced themselves that Benedict XVI didn't really resign or did so invalidly and was therefore still Pope, whether he knew it or not, thus rendering Jorge Bergoglio an anti-Pope by default. So it's like Sedevacantism, only specific to Benedict XVI, hence Benevacantism. Now, I have a couple of acquaintances who fell into this opinion, and I recall making the point that Pope or not, Joseph Ratzinger was not long for this world, and that at his inevitable demise, they would have to either recognize Pope Francis's legitimacy or simply become garden-variety set of acantists, most of whom don't think we've had a pope, a legitimate pope since Pius Twelfth, And unfortunately, in some cases, that's precisely what's happened. But what really struck me is that it's still a thing at all. You know, apparently there have been four books written about the Benevacantus theory. And, and it's unimaginable to me that there's enough material for one book. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me how human beings are, are so good at inventing conspiracy theories and finding ways to get around the obvious. But the, the, the fellow who wrote this article, Mr. Stephen O'Reilly, has also written his own book to refute the many Byzantine arguments that have been concocted to support this frankly unreasonable theory. And for my part, I don't think it requires a book-long response. Uh, the foundational argument for Benevacantism is that Ratzinger's um, resignation was invalid due to some technical defect of form. In other words, he didn't resign correctly, so he's still porp. Still pope, I should say. Or even less realistically, that he never really intended to resign completely in the first place and mistakenly thought that he could somehow share the papacy with Francis. Or even less realistically, that his resignation was purposely invalid so that he could secretly remain Pope in order to expose the corruption that he was too weak to confront openly. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I'll try and explain in due course. Now, for what it's worth, and for what I hope is the last time, here is my response to the various theories of Benevacantism. First things first, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger was legitimately elected to the papacy in 2005 after the death of his predecessor, Pope St. John Paul II. As Benedict XVI, Ratzinger's relation to canon law became that of supreme legislator. Canon 332 says the Roman pontiff obtains full and supreme power in the church by his acceptance of legitimate election together with episcopal consecration. Full and supreme power. What does that mean? Just what it says. Now, while a pope is certainly bound by the deposit of faith, he's sworn, you know, in which he is, we were talking about this on the Terry and Jesse show today, he's sworn to defend and to pass on the deposit unchanged, but he's not entirely subject to canon law, which as supreme legislator, he can modify or technically even abolish at his good pleasure. 
nor does canon law admit of any appeal or, or, or recourse against a sentence or decree of the Pope. Canon 333, there is neither appeal nor recourse against a judgment or a decree of the Roman pontiff. And in the slam dunk is canon 1404, the first C is judged by no one. Therefore, when Benedict, as supreme legislator, made manifest his will to resign the papacy, no alleged uh, canonical defective form could impede that resignation, since no one is competent to judge the Pope. Again, Canon 332 states, If it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, okay, this is foreseen in canon law, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, it is required for validity that his resignation is made freely and proper, freely and properly manifested, but not that it is accepted by anyone. In other words, Benedict XVI resigned whether you like it or not, no matter who you are. Okay, we'll come and, and uh, finish this conversation and talk about the question uh, I didn't even know it was a question. Should we call Protestants Christians? All that and more when we come back with No Nonsense Catholicism. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We are talking, for what I hope is the last time, about Benedictism and the idea that uh, that Pope Benedict didn't properly resign the papacy and therefore remained pope, making Francis an anti-pope by default. Uh, And I would think that his death would have cleared this up, but apparently not. So um, I was just reading the canonical uh, definition about uh, papal resignation and and notice that it, it... there's nothing about the form that it must take. There is no uh, required canonical formula for papal resignation. So long as the resignation is made freely, that is without coercion, and properly manifested, which is to say done openly, uh, then, you know, in other words, the Pope can't secretly resign uh, any more than he can secretly remain Pope (laughs) after his resignation. So like it or not, Benedict resigned in 2013. But by 2021, uh, Benedict you know, had gotten too loud to ignore. And so uh, in response, Benedict XVI made a public statement. He said, it was a difficult decision, but I made it in full awareness, and I think I did the right thing. Some of my friends who are a bit fanatical are still angry. They didn't want to accept my choice. They don't want to believe it was a conscious choice, but my conscience is clear. Now, it was a welcome statement, and it should have cleared things up once and for all, but it didn't stop the Beneficantists from uh, continuing to spin further conspiracy theories, uh, which should never have been made in the first place. Benedict's resignation was made freely and publicly, and therefore validly, and was accepted as an accomplished fact by the College of Cardinals, who then duly elected Jorge Bergoglio as success, his successor. So the worldwide episcopate, the Catholic faithful, and virtually the entirety of the non-Catholic world, for that matter, even those who don't accept the doctrine of the papacy, all of them recognize Jorge Bergoglio as Pope Francis, Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church. Therefore, read my lips, Jorge Bergoglio is the Pope. It cannot be otherwise. Uh, or the traditional declaration, Abemus Papam, would be rendered meaningless. We could never be sure if we ever had, if we had a pope or not. In his final general audience, Benedict asked for prayers, quote, for the new successor of the Apostle Peter, 
and then specifically asked for each of you to pray for me and for the new pope. See, that's Benedict manifestly and unambiguously declaring that he was no longer the pope. Now, admittedly, there was confusion. I remember the day that Benedict XVI announced his resignation. I was given a series of talks for the Knights of Columbus, and and I said that for the remainder of his life, uh, uh, Benedict would be known as the Bishop Emeritus of Rome. And uh, the Knights Chaplain, a, a good priest, corrected me. He said, no, he's going to be called Pope Emeritus. And I said, oh, Father, surely not. Uh, um, you know, uh, popes have resigned before, but never in our history have we used the term Pope Emeritus. However, he assured me that he had friends in Rome that had confirmed it, and uh, I remained skeptical until uh, it was announced that, sure enough, he would take that title. Now, that novel title, Pope Emeritus, is entirely unprecedented, and in my opinion, it was an unfortunate choice, precisely because for the ignorant, it does seem to imply that there are two popes, Um, which I suspect is why in 2,000 years the term has never been employed. Uh, uh, that said, my opinion in 10 bucks will get you a Big Mac fries and a Coke. But frankly, that also applies to any novel opinions of a 90-plus-year-old Pope Emeritus, although I understand he would have preferred Orange Fanta with his burger rather than Coke. Uh, But let me explain. Some Beneficantists believe that Benedict XVI never meant, he did not intend to fully resign at all. Rather, he intended to remain Pope all along in a kind of a a schizophrenic way by separating the active ministry of the papacy from the contemplative ministry. So with Francis kind of playing Martha to his Mary, or that he actually, that he only pretended to resign in order to expose the corruption in the church, which he was not doing successfully or, or was too weak to confront out in the open. Now, okay, that's nonsense, but how did it start? Well, in the same general audience, when, Francis, or when Benedict said, please pray for me and for the new pope, he talked about the papal ministry. He said, the always is also a forever. Uh, there can no longer be a return to the private sphere. My decision to resign the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. I do not return to private life, to a life of travel, meetings, receptions, conferences, and so on. I am not abandoning the cross but remaining in a new way at the side of the crucified Lord. I no longer bear the power of office for the governance of the church, but in the service of prayer I remain, so to speak, in the enclosure of St. Peter. Unquote. Now, the Beneficantists took the words, I remain, so to speak, in the enclosure of St. Peter, to mean that Benedict, in some way, intended to retain the papal office. Now, to anyone who speaks English, this is grade A nonsense. According to the dictionary, the phrase, so to speak, indicates that one is using words in in a metaphorical or or figurative way rather than a literal way. You know, for example, and this is the example that was in the dictionary, we all need to be on the same wavelength, so to speak, right? This isn't a literal reference to radio waves. It means that that, uh, a group all needs to, to be in agreement, right? So in context, Benedict's remarks regarding the always and forever of the papacy obviously refer to the fact that the, that the papacy refers a certain grace or character that never goes away, not via resignation, not even death. In fact, you know, we see this at the death of Benedict XVI, you know, that's released us from, from the uh, continued use of the unfortunate term Bishop Emeritus and allows us once again to call him simply Pope Benedict. Um, 
and such he remains, for always and forever, in the same sense as all of his predecessors, whether their pontificates, pontificates ended in death or resignation, and even though in every case each one was succeeded by a new pope. <clears throat> even if the, Bene uh, the Benedictantists were correct to think that Benedict considered himself to retain the contemplative papal ministry as a complement to Bergoglio's active ministry, the point is simply this. Regardless of his opinions, or how cryptically he may have expressed them, the fact remains that Benedict resigned and Jorge Bergoglio became Pope Francis. Now, frankly, I don't understand how Benedictantists can still claim confusion as a source of their nonsense when Benedict himself stated clearly in 2021, there is only one Pope. And speaking of Pope Francis, not himself. In the end, I know that there are people who are concerned about uh, the direction the church is heading. I know there are people who are concerned about the current pontificate and the ramifications of, of some of the actions that have been undertaken. But just remember that the church has weathered other storms. And we have our Lord's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Benedictism should have been officially laid to rest with Benedict's demise. There's really nothing left to argue about. Not only that, but uh, going forward, the death or resignation of Pope Francis will likewise end his pontificate as well, just the way pontificates have ended for 2,000 years. The only reason I've given this so much attention is, number one, because it gives traditionalist Catholics a black eye, right? We just guilt by association. Number two, more importantly, uh, I, I fear that this silly theory may become a stumbling block in the faith life of people who may be distracted by it for more important issues, like growing in holiness and charity and, and overcoming their own faults, saving their souls. You know, whatever canon law says about the various minutiae, uh, the primary axiom is salus animarum supremalex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. And so if you know anyone who's become embroiled in this tempest in a teapot, ask them to consider if they think that taking time, aware from, taking time away from prayer and, and good works and spiritual reading to agonize over unsubstantiated and frankly unreasonable theories is helping them get to heaven. As a final thought, I'd like to offer some words from the imitation of Christ. Our own opinions and lack of knowledge of the truth often lead us astray. What good will it do us to learn many things, the knowledge of which will not help us on judgment day, nor hurt us if we do not know them? It is foolish not to learn those things which are necessary for us, and it is likewise foolish to waste our time on those which merely satisfy our curiosity and hurt us in the end. For if we do so, we have eyes, but do not see. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, we have uh, one more topic today, as long as I'm in apologist mode. Uh, I got an email just yesterday, th th which made a lot of, uh, shall I say, interesting assertions. Now, a lot of the emails I get are typical questions. You know, why do Catholics call priest father? My husband is Protestant. How can I explain why the church doesn't allow non-Catholics to receive communion at Mass? Right, that, that sort of thing. These sort of boilerplate questions. Um, uh, or at least have questions that have kind of boilerplate answers. You know, and normally I would answer these things privately, 
But once in a while, something comes along that I think would interest you. I think it's worth sharing. And this email came to me from a fellow, um, I'll give his initials, SS, and he lives in the United Kingdom. And he begins, hello, Mr. Arnold. So at least he's polite. I am listening to your CDs on Gabriel Amorth, and you said something that's very wrong. You said Protestant churches, which is in fact cults, all caps. Say, okay, first off, uh, he's referring to one of Father Amorth's audiobooks. I did two of them, uh, recorded two of them for Ignatius Press. So whatever I said, uh, it was Father Amorth's words, not mine. I'm just reading a book. Also, while Christian communities that do not enjoy the apostolic succession, uh, they are properly so-called ecclesial communities rather than churches. But, but the word church is common usage, right? So we say Baptist church, Lutheran church, Presbyterian church, etc. And, and that's particularly true if we're talking about the church building, right? For example, uh, it would not be wrong to say, oh, St. John's on Main Street is a Lutheran church, okay? Uh, and, and furthermore, it would be an abuse of the term to call them cults. But he goes on to make some more interesting claims and and, uh, admonishments that I will be happy to share with you when we return on the other side of this break. uh, Last segment for this week's No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So I want to invite you to stay with us because we will be right back after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm talking about an email that I refer I received from a certain SS uh, uh, regarding uh, that it's an error to call Protestant communities churches. Technically, that is correct. They should be called ecclesial communities because they do not uh, enjoy the apostolic succession. However, he goes on uh, to say, only Jesus can found a church, not sinful men or women. Please watch Don't Call Protestants Christian which I assume is a YouTube video, although he did not include a link. And when I searched for it on YouTube, I didn't find it. So uh, he may have the title wrong or it may have been uh, removed. I don't know. So I can't comment on it in any case. But he continues, in fact, Protestantism is, all caps, an abomination in the sight of God. Protestants, including the Orthodox, say with Satan, we will not serve, all caps, the infallible magisterium of the Holy Catholic Church. When it comes to the Orthodox, who became cults when they broke with Rome in 1054 AD, plus they reject filioque and purgatory, which is totally biblical. Okay, so uh, this guy's I mean, grammar is all over the place. I'm not sure that that uh, sentence makes sense, but uh, clearly he's suggesting correctly that there were doctrinal disputes involved in the Orthodox schism. But there is a distinction between schism and apostasy. The Orthodox communities are properly called particular churches because they profess the Apostles' Creed, they have valid sacraments, including the priesthood, and their bishops enjoy the apostolic succession. They are, however, schismatic because they refuse communion with the Bishop of Rome, which is to say that while they accept that the Pope is the Bishop of Rome, uh, some of the Orthodox even recognize his primacy, they do not accept his supremacy considering him at best only uh, primus inter pares, that is, the first among equals. 
But the Orthodox churches are not cults by any stretch of the imagination. Catechism of the Catholic Church says that our communion with the Orthodox churches, albeit imperfect, is nevertheless so profound that it lacks little to attain the fullness that would permit a common celebration of the Lord's Eucharist. Okay, so I think that when this fellow calls the Orthodox Church a cult, he's the one who's saying, I will not serve to the magisterium, which is clearly reflected in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, what about the Protestants? He says they shouldn't be called Christians. Well, he's correct when he says there's only one church. You know, Father Lavosic, he taught my kids with this, you know, Jesus brought the same gospel to all men, called them all to the same new life, and his church is the union of those who follow his call. Catholics recognize the unique fullness of the Catholic Church, which we profess to be the ordinary means of salvation. St. Paul says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, with that truth in mind, specifically concerning baptized non-Catholics, the Catechism says this, The Church knows that she is joined in many ways to the baptized who are honored by the name of Christian, but do not profess the Catholic faith in its entirety, or have not preserved unity or communion under the successor of Peter. Pardon me. So that's the Protestants and the Orthodox. Those who believe in Christ and have been properly baptized are put in a certain, although imperfect, communion with the Catholic Church. Now, Vatican II pointed out that that our separated brethren enjoy many of the means of salvation found within the Catholic Church. That would include prayer and the Holy Scriptures and uh, valid baptism. In fact, as an RCIA catechist for the last dozen years, I can testify that the Church does not rebaptize non-Catholic Christians who convert to Catholicism. Uh, many such non-Catholic Christians who come into full communion with the Church this very Easter, as they do every year, you know, will be received without being rebaptized because they're already Christians. Catholic Church, or, you know, the Catechism teaches that men enter the Church through baptism as through a door. So to say that a validly baptized man, woman, or, or child is, is not a Christian is a profoundly serious error. The more so if you call yourself a Catholic, because a Catholic can't be invincibly ignorant. Not only should you know better, uh, but, but you have the responsibility to know better. You can't plead invincible ignorance if you're Catholic. Here's the bottom line. If a believing Catholic were to leave the faith for the Orthodox Church, he would become a schismatic. If he were to leave the Church for a Protestant ecclesial community, he would become a heretic. If he were to abandon the Christian faith entirely to join a, 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 a cult or, or a non-Christian religion or, or uh, become an atheist, he would be called an apostate. In every case, he would incur automatic excommunication. However, the, you know that's late sense excommunication because of the act. But the, the, the Reformation era excommunications that were leveled against the, uh, uh, our separated brethren have long since been lifted. And why? Because a modern-day Protestant Christian is not an heretical Catholic, but rather someone who's a part of, often born into, an, uh, a sometimes centuries-long Christian tradition and who enjoys valid baptism, uh, presumably sacramental marriage, has the Holy Scriptures, prays, and so on. Such a person is not a Catholic, but must be considered a Christian. 
To say no is to say I will not serve to the magisterium, which is precisely what he's accusing um, our separated brethren of doing. And those of us who would dare to refer them refer to them as Christians are, are apparently doing as well. <clears throat> now, I suspect that my interlocutor uh, is hung up on a literalistic interpretation of the axiom coined by St. Cyprian back in the 3rd century, extra ecclesium nullis salis est. Outside the church, there's no salvation. Now, we've already seen what the Catechism says about non-Catholic Christians, but what about non-Christians? Well, the, Catholic, the Catechism answers the question this way. It says, How are we to understand this affirmation often repeated by the Church Fathers? That's extra ecclesium nullis salis. Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ, the head, through the Church, which is his body. Basing itself on Scripture and tradition, the Council teaches that the Church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the Church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the Church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse to enter it or to remain in it. In other words, if you know that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation, but refuse to become or stay Catholic, you could not be saved. Well, the question arises, what about those who don't know this truth? And the Catechism says this affirmation, no salvation outside the Church, is not aimed at those who through no fault of their own, right, that's the necessary condition, do not know Christ and his church. That's invincible ignorance. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and, moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience. Those too may achieve eternal salvation. Wait a minute. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God but through me. Not a way, not, not uh, the preferred way, the only way. So how can you say this? Well, this is consistent with the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, who said that all men are given sufficient grace to be saved. You know, the, the Muslim, the, the Calvinist, would say that God created some people to go to hell, but that would make God the author of evil. That, that, that's a, a contradiction. It's a nonsense. God created all men. God, it is the, the will of God. It's the desire of God that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We have free will which must be exercised. But he can't bind us to, to information that we don't know. That Hence the, the teaching of invincible ignorance. But if a person is in that state, Aquinas tells us, and you know, the Catechism, Vatican II, affirms that God will provide sufficient grace uh, to every person uh, to be saved. But obviously, the church that he established, the sacramentalist system that, that communicates to the world the graces that he won on the Holy Cross, that is the ordinary means of salvation. And if you are saved without being a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church, it's still because of the Catholic Church. It's still because of Christ and the church that he founded. It's still because the, the, it is those same graces, one on the Holy Cross, communicated to the world by the Church, that will save you. You cannot be saved in spite of Christ, but only because of him. 
And, and I think that should be very clear. That, that's no nonsense. Um, he, he says to me, SS says, if Jesus died for all, then no one would be damned. Jesus' death would cover innumerable souls, yes, if they accept, but tragically most don't. Those who go to hell have rejected Jesus' death, so he didn't die for them. I say now that if, capital I-F, if I'm wrong, then I humbly ask Mary to help me. Now, that's a good start. Let me uh, uh, ask Our Lady permission to, to uh, lend a hand here. Because what seems to be going on is the all-too-common conflation of redemption with salvation. And ironically, this is a common error among our separated brethren, who, whom SS so adamantly denies the name of Christian. Jesus not only died for all, all have been redeemed by his precious blood. Um, his passion is our redemption. Salvation, on the other hand, is a matter of cooperating with the graces won on the Holy Cross. Obviously, to say that Jesus died for all is not the same as saying all are saved. Now, the turning point in his uh, email, and I will address this on next week's program, is uh, the next thing he said, which is, please watch the latest excellent video from Queen of Peace Media about the soon-to-come warning or illumination of conscience by Christine Watkins. Ah, yes, the illumination of conscience, the great warning, the three days of darkness. I've been listening to this and hearing about this since I became Catholic. You know, and this is according to the alleged apparition of Our Lady at Garabandal, Spain, that this great warning and the illumination of conscience will come shortly before the end times, and everyone will personally experience an awareness of their own sinfulness, and each one will be alone before God in a kind of wake-up call to every human being. Now, we're going to address that and look at the veracity of the apparitions at Garabendal according to the mind of the Church on next week's No Nonsense Catholic. So I hope to uh, you will join us for that. I want to say thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you especially for your prayers and, if possible, your financial support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We are entirely listener-supported, and you can go to vmpr.org and hit that Donate button. We would appreciate it immensely. In the meantime, lots of great stuff going on, so get the app, go to the website. Um, while you're there, register now for our upcoming men's conference, one of our most popular events every year, featuring Johnny and Jesse Romero this year, and... Uh, and everything else that we've got going on here. And in the meantime, again, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.